everyone, and welcome to Opera After Dark. That was Kyle Homewood, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> On the air I guitar. I figured since we're talking about the rock stars of oh. opera, I would drop some, oh. some rock guitar. The John Bon Jovi of the 18th yes. century. <laughs> no, is that not? Wanted. <laughs> Dead all alive. So I'm Naomi. <laughs> I'm Elspeth. And I'm Kyle. And you're listening to a podcast all about crazy and ridiculous stories from across music history. So our last episode was all about the medical procedures and kind of historical background on castrati. Scrotums! (laughs) Scrotums as far as the eye could see. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And so we're going to try and pick up where we left off by delving into the more, the lighter side, less Mm -hmm. cringeworthy side of the topic, talking about the castrato rock stars of the time period. Before that, Kyle, as always, Mm -hmm. is going to tell us about the wine that we are imbibing this evening. Well, speaking of the rock stars mm-hmm. we many of us know that before getting into this topic i just really all i knew was that we might be talking about uh, farinelli in some capacity and i happened to see on a certain reputable website that his <laughs> uh, operatic debut was in vienna so oh. as such i have an austrian wine for nice. us tonight mm-hmm. that is a zweigelt which we don't know the direct translation, but we have some guesses. And in any case, this is from the Bergenland of Austria, which is near, <laughs> near-ish to Vienna, where the... Do you where know the that? I, just, I, I mean, I Google mapped it. Oh, it's okay. on the same side right, of the right. country, cool. at least. Cool, 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 um, cool. And it was bottled in Vienna anyways. So, but anyways, the descriptor for this one is a... Uh, the typical fruity and spicy character of the Austrian signature red wine, uh, Grape Zweigelt, develops at its best in the Bergenland wine-growing region. Mm. Medium-bodied and very juicy, with an intense cherry aroma, this wine is a pleasure to drink. No, I do taste the cherry aroma. Oh. Not I taste, to be sarcastic. I taste the pleasure to drink. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> But it's good, yeah. All right. After, if you guys listened to last week's episode, you heard me say scrotum and testes like 18 times, which is a thrill for me. It really was. Um, But we're going to dive into basically the rewards of having your testicles snipped off. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The many, many rewards. The many rewards for for a few. The five or ten people that made it to this level. But Naomi, I think you want to take it away and talk about the first most super famous castrati of all time, Farinelli. Yes, so Farinelli was born Carlo Broschi. Oh, so he changed his name? Farinelli is a stage name. Yeah. Oh, like Freddie Mercury? I guess so. Mm. So. What's Freddie Mercury's real name? I'll have to Google it. I don't know. Keep going. All right. So (laughs) uh, basically, uh, he was... Born into a musical family, his father was a musician, his brother was a musician, and then his father died when he was pretty young, and he went on to continue studying, and he studied with Nicola Porpora, who, Porpora, that's a mouthful, and he was a composer and also taught a lot, and so he's kind of really famous in the history of singing, wrote some treatises and that kind of thing. He taught many fine singers, and... 
among them Farinelli, and Farinelli made his stage debut in 1720 in one of Porpora's operas, and... Was it in Vienna, or am I full of it? Uh, we'll go with it. In Vienna. In Vienna, let's it say. It totally in um, Vienna. Heads up, people. Freddie Mercury's real name was Farouk Bussara. What? That's what the internet says. And, wow. What's his nationality? You know, I don't know. But I will say that I think Freddie Mercury has... He was born in Tanzania. Okay. But, I mean, Freddie Mercury had a voice... Who knew that? ...to die for. And he was a bit of an opera fan. He was. Mm-hmm. Right? He I don't know much was. about it, but I, I feel like I know that he was all about that opera. So let's say Freddie Mercury and Queen, the equivalent yes. of modern-day Castrati as far as, like, levels of fame and flamboyancy, sure. things uh-huh. like that. Um, I have a, a fun little story. You know how Castrati's had these incredible voices. Um, a lot of the times they would sit there and they would rewrite the scores to highlight mm-hmm. their own vocal capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an 18th-century Castrato um with a reputation for really bombastic arias. And he stipulated that every time he comes on stage in an opera, he always needs to enter on a hilltop. (laughs) (laughs) No, let me finish. (laughs) On a hilltop, carrying a sword and a spear, wearing a helmet, topped with six foot tall red and white plumes. And every aria he needs to sing begins with the words, where am I? Wow. wow. Like every time he went anywhere and did anything. You know what I'm thinking? Every is entrance just, was like that. When you're describing that, I think somebody's overcompensating for something. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> lack of testicles. Put me on a hill <laughs> with a sword. And a six foot tall plume. A plume bigger than every other man on stages. <gasps> wow. Oh. Fun fact. Yeah. Oh, I'm right. glad Sorry. you know it. Yes, Go Naomi, on. continue. Sorry. No, I like, these, I like these with, with fun the, digression. the actual history of this. Right. So he makes his debut in 1720. This is Farinelli. He goes on to sing in Rome and in Naples, and he basically achieves a lot of success in the northern Italian cities, Venice, Milan, Florence, mm-hmm. and he kind of gets into the good graces with with Elisabetta Farnese. The Farnese family is very powerful at this time, so this all builds into his fame. And then he basically gets lured to London in 1729. I feel like Uh, London is where shit got real. That's right. For them. And it was actually Handel who secured him, composer Handel, who secured him a job uh, or like an engagement Mm -hmm. in London to lure him there. And... So he goes to London again, he becomes really, really famous, and he just takes the whole city by storm. And so there's a quote that I have here, published in the Daily Post, and on seven, July 7th, 1737, and it said, Farinello, what with his salary, his benefit night, and the presence made him by some of the wise people of this nation, gets at least 5,000 a year in England, and yet he is not ashamed to run about like a stroller from kingdom to kingdom as if he, as if we did not give him sufficient encouragement, which we hope the noble lords of the Haymarket will look upon as a great affront done to them in their country. So did they just expect they were going to throw money at him or he was just going to stay He was going to stay area? there. So they got upset that he, you know, 
came, was really successful, and then just continued to travel on and be successful. They Man's wanted to make stay. a living. I know. Yeah. Now we know why Handel was kind of annoyed, as we learned in our last episode. You know, because he's like, uh, people, what do you expect? If you want to keep a castrato, why don't you make one? <laughs> Word. Right. <laughs> Someone who has loyalties to the country. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I also have, there was, like, things in his contract that were kind of interesting. Like what? He was, um, let's see here. He went to Madrid to sing in Madrid, and Fun. it became his uh, responsibility to serenade the king every night. Nice. The exact <laughs> number of arias differed in reports between three and nine. Oh, okay. Right. And he actually continued to do this, like, whenever he was in Spain up until the king's death in 1746. He was appointed a royal servant to the king, and he, there was a royal patent related to him. Uh, he got 1,500 guineas in English money, as well as a coach with two mules for his personal travel needs, a team mm -hmm. of six mules for trips that were between cities, and then also a carriage when necessary, um, and suitable lodgings for his persons as well as his family um, whenever he needed them. Did he have... A family, like beyond, well, obviously he had a family, but like beyond his his mother and father, like people who trap an entourage. I'm not really sure if he if had he like a, a lover slash family or entourage. I'm not really. I'm wondering sure. if he had like a steady, for lack of a better word, who like <laughs> right. traveled around with him, or did he have like groupies that went with him everywhere? That I could he... totally see him having groupies. I know. Oh, I mean, if, if we're thinking rock star, right? Okay, so more about Farinelli. Yes. We we know, and Elspeth and I talked about this the other day, that he always wore very elaborate cravats yeah. so that they would cover his whole neck area so that you couldn't see that he didn't have an Adam's apple because this is one physical oh. trait we didn't None mention. of them had Adam's apples. Yeah. Bananas. Yeah. So he would cover it up. Right? Yep. And actually, one of the only portraits or likenesses of him, of Farinelli, that survived, that we're pretty sure is supposed to be him, mm -hmm. is a, a drawing of him in an operatic scene, and he's actually playing a female role. So he's, like, in a dress and cross-dressed. And oh. so, yes. Uh-huh. Was he handsome, do we know? I'm assuming he was probably pretty handsome. <laughs> I'm not... I'm in your wildest dreams. In my wildest dreams. In everyone's wildest dreams, what do they think Farinelli looks like? Compared Ooh. to, like, famous people yeah, today. Yeah, you should name a famous person Who is our Farinelli right doppelganger? Naomi Yuga. I'm, oh, I don't know. I'm picturing somebody, like, super, like, skinny, but also incredibly good-looking. Mm. Maybe, like... Oh. <laughs> name someone. Is it, like, is it... Is his name James Garfield that's in Spider-Man? Andrew Garfield. <laughs> oh, Andrew. James, James Garfield is the president. <laughs> Guys, the wine. It's the wine. <laughs> Andrew Garfield. <laughs> it's okay, fine. yeah, it's I fine. can see that. I just James mean like somebody Garfield. who's really skinny, pretty tall, but also pretty good looking. Right. But you know, remember, they also had these huge, ginormous, cartoonish rib cages. Right. Is it really, though? Yeah. Now I'm just now because of the last episode, I'm actually picturing a character from Avatar. I <laughs> know, right? A Navi. Um, who would I think would be like? Oh, what about the guy who is going to be in um, Fantastical Beasts and Where to Find Them? I'm in a big Harry Potter kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. I was there thinking that. Yeah. Oh my god. Like, 
Is That's Farnelli a good one. A redhead? You're just channeling Danish girl. He can Danish dye his girl. hair. That's true. That's true. I should see that movie. It's supposed to be so good. That's oh, beautiful. it is good. It's yeah. emotionally challenging. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. But All right. Eddie so Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. Imagine him as with a big rib cage. With a big rib cage and really tall. Um, um, you guys are making it sound like walking, <laughs> like <laughs> walking down the street. You'd be like, "Holy hell! Look at that guy's rib cage." Well, <laughs> and lack of an Adam's apple on that guy over there. No, don't stare. He's, he's also seven feet tall in a time where everybody's five foot three. Well, didn't they? Someone just d- dug up a body of a castrati, and there were all these articles about like what it did to his body, and it's fucked up. Yeah. Like, they were really abnormal looking. Okay. Some of them. I think Farinelli was pretty normal looking. It couldn't have been bad enough to where, like, I mean, people still I wanted it was them. was an eight foot tall. People. It wasn't bad Look enough. Look at that guy. Gosh. To dissuade the English oh, the ladies. ladies. Of the exactly. But again, as you're we saying, apparently. back then, those ladies are probably. A real repressed and <laughs> right. I was actually just reading an article on Google all about like secret cabinets that the English had or in like little rooms where they would keep all the like scandalous stuff. There you go. It was good. Okay. Do we have more facts about Farinelli? <laughs> well, okay, so he's really famous. There's a lot of quotes that describe his voice and describe his singing. So just imagine Eddie Redmayne and then mm-hmm. this is a description of Farinelli published in 1726 by J.J. Quantz. Mm, <laughs> love, love his work. And so, <laughs> so he said that Farinelli had a penetrating, full, rich, <laughs> bright, and well-modulated soprano voice <laughs> whose range extended at that time from an A to a high D. A few oh, years shit, after man. this, it had extended lower by a few notes, but without the loss of any of the high notes, so that in many operas, one aria, usually the adagio, was written for him in the normal tessitura of a contralto, while his other arias were written for his soprano range. Oh, shit. So at this time, I feel like the referencing of these voice types are like female voice types. Is that just a, a modern conception? or? I think it's a modern conception. Right. So Women at the time, still didn't. So at the time it was all men, but yep. they still referred to them as soprano. They still had know, the ranges alto, think, because they had like choirs with boy sopranos and things like that. Right, okay. and things like that. And when this eventually became out of fashion, um, then like mezzos came in and, and took right. over. Look at like the work of Mozart with pants rolls and, and things like that. Right. Yeah, okay. So he continues to say... That Farinelli's intonation was pure, his trill beautiful, his breath control extraordinary, and his throat very agile, so that he performed even the <laughs> widest <laughs> intervals quickly and with the greatest ease and certainty. That guy's got a good throat. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but... I want to say something, but I won't. Don't say it. Passage work in all varieties of melismas were no difficulty whatsoever for him. In the invention of free ornamentation... <laughs> He was very fertile. Oh, man. That's intentional. That's intentional. These are all intentional sexual references. It must be. Again, they were the rock stars of that era because opera was the popular art form, and so every reference to them is, like, really thinly Mm -hmm. veiled sexual innuendo. Mm -hmm. I feel like part of the mystique of the castrati was the incredible singing, and then the other, let's say, 40% was, like, the sexual prowess. Oh, yeah. For sure. Nice. 
And speaking of them being rock stars, we mentioned this in the last episode, but Farinelli was notorious for canceling performances. He oh. canceled several performances. So he was a little bit temperamental. Now we're into diva. So, diva yeah, they range. had like they a were diva. total divas. Because, sure. I mean, they could. They A lot of them traveled around, and whenever opera they were in, they're like, this is the aria that I sing. Right. Work it into the rest of the plot. Oh, no. Like, this is what I have, and this is what shows off my voice to the greatest advantage, so we're putting this in there. So yeah. that's a, a question that I have. When do we do we have a date where people stopped composing, like our big name composers stopped composing for for Castrati? I don't have a specific date, but I know by the time the 19th century rolls around, most people found castration grotesque. Um, uh, okay, we, more point, more direct question. Naomi, Mozart expert, did Mozart compose for? Castrati. There are some roles in Mozart's operatic ex- output that were written for Castrati. Mm-hmm. One comes to mind in La Finta Giardiniera. It's early, but there's a Castrato role. Ramiro. In it. I think Ramiro. Yeah, and there's a couple other sprinkled around. Also, La Clemenza di Tito, I think, has yeah. a Castrato role mm-hmm. in it. Sesto was or supposed to be a man? Possibly, or a pants role. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Mozart's also sort of credited with being the first to write a legit pants role, like a role that he intentionally wrote for a female singer impersonating a boy, Carabino. Right. Right? So he's kind of known as the first to really really do that. But interesting, to go back to your other question. I have a feeling that Mozart, no, go ahead. That Mozart what? Had an appreciation for testicles. Probably. Like he felt like everybody should just keep them. Well, I mean, we can get it's into pretty this contested in another practice. episode that sure, we're going yeah. to talk right. about Mozart in greater detail, but he yeah, was more yeah, interested yeah. in what happened on the other side. Okay, right. sure. In the butt region. All right. Okay. <laughs> right. Anyways, you were going to say I was going to say that Elspeth is right that there's this time period where the public just generally starts to feel like the whole practice is pretty horrific. Right. And, but it also coincides with kind of changing aesthetics in basically from 1800 to 1840 is like the time period where we have the decline of the castrati in mm-hmm. popularity and the rise of the heroic tenor sound, right? Mm-hmm. And so actually John Potter, who's a scholar and musician, has done a lot of research in this area and he has some good articles and books about it. And he was the one who basically mapped out this critical point in time where this change happens because essentially... Castrati, when they were no longer active on the opera stage or, you know, when they got old and wanted to retire but still make a little bit of money, or if they weren't super successful, they would become teachers. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. Castrati often taught other Castrati how to sing. And then there's this time period where Castrati start teaching tenors how to sing. So the tenor voice, male tenor voice, has a lot of Castrati... Um, technique in it and so I feel like that's really reflective in like the bel canto period yes where you have sort of go ahead yeah you have this clear kind of definition between head voice Mm -hmm. and chest voice because castrati used head voice so much because they had the range right Right. so they passed that on to tenors virtuosity as far as the 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 melody lines and things like that there's flexibility that kind of thing it allows for a lot of ornamentation and so then you have in this period you have tenors that start taking the chest voice and they try pushing the chest voice higher and higher and higher mm-hmm. and that's when you get this phenomenon of the chested high C if you think of La Fille du Regiment and mm. uh, Tonio's A Mes Amis right mm-hmm. you get these high C's that are sung in chest voice and basically when audiences heard 
a tenor singing high notes in chest voice. They were kind of like blown back in their seats. They thought it was the most like masculine heroic sound. And then so you have this period where people disagree about whether it sounds good or not, but eventually the tenor, the chested tenor wins out. And by the time Verity comes along, you know, everyone's right, a whole different ballgame. Whole different ballgame. And so mm-hmm. you have this critical period where you have this state of flux, things are changing, and then you eventually have the decline of the castrati, which is why all the castrados that were singing towards the end of the 1800s were all in the church, right? They were all employed right. by the Sistine Chapel or other places like that, and they were not on the opera stage because people weren't writing things for them because the operatic audiences didn't want to see that or hear that anymore. Right, and that was sort of the rise of Verismo, which, right. you know, sort of based all the stories on real life, and so they wanted things that seemed as, as true to life as opera can possibly be. Right. You know? Right. So it was very, like, I guess masculine men singing in masculine ways. Right. Ladies on stage, mm-hmm. playing yes. ladies. And, and of course, kind of that plays into it. You know, the more females right. are allowed into opera, then you don't need a castrato to sing a female role, because you can... You actually have a woman. You have a woman. Know? So yeah. that plays into Ew. it, too. <laughs> you mean people wanted to see men... And women on the stage? I know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Dun, dun, dun. Do we, well, I'm hopeful that some of that stuff, The you said it was whom Potter? John, John, Potter. John Potter. Can we link to any of his stuff? We'll link to his stuff and yeah. I'll, I'll write about him on the blog. So okay. he's, he's done some pretty fascinating research, and he kind of traced like a whole lineage of teachers and students to show you this general shift from castrati teaching castrati to castrati, or sorry, from... Castrati teaching castrati's to castrati's teaching tenors to then tenors teaching tenors. Mm-hmm. So and it happens over this long period of time. Mm-hmm. And everybody realizing that tenors are the best. <sighs> well. I mean, come on. I mean, come on. Tenors. Okay. So on that note, why don't we listen to a we tenor? Should, sure. You, we yeah. should hear the chested sound. So actually, let's hear both the chested sound and this idea of like head versus chest because I think that's hard for people who aren't in the thick of opera to really understand the difference between the two. So our first clip, this is Pavarotti, and this is just a short little clip where you can hear him pushing the chest voice into the high range and then he actually flips for like one note into head voice and then he goes back again into chest voice and goes down. So you can hear the timbral difference, the quality of sound that's different. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to that, then we'll listen to another little clip. So here's Pavarotti. A mes amis. That will be our second clip. Okay. Pavarotti clip is, it's a Bellini excerpt from E. Puritani. So. Okay. Here we go. Oh, 
So now we'll listen to full chess voice all the way, an excerpt from Ames Ami by Donizetti. This is full chess voice in those high seas. And we'll listen to Juan Diego. Is that who you were thinking? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So good. <laughs> So all good. about chested tenors. But really good. I mean, right. real good. It's Juan Diego. Oh, God. How can you not love him? He's the man. He yeah. is the man. Maybe he'll come on the podcast. That would be amazing. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to send him an email. Send him an email. Yeah. yeah. Dear Juan Diego. Juan Diego, if you're listening, please. Mr. Flores. Mr. Flores, sorry. Yes. yes. Please come on our podcast. Anyway. I feel like we meant to talk about the Farinelli movie, but haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah. yeah. There is this movie that was made all about Farinelli dramatizing his life and times. And in it, they did something really interesting because we mentioned on the last episode that we don't actually know what the castrato timbre sounded like. Mm-hmm. So in this movie, they actually superimposed three different voices on top of each other and like did some technical mixing magic. They had all excerpts that Farinelli sings in the film. A boy soprano sings it, a mezzo-soprano woman sings it, and a male countertenor sings it, and then they like mix them all together to try and create a slightly different sound. And so in the movie, there's lots of excerpts of Farinelli singing things that were written for him. So I think Kyle mentioned this clip where he holds this note yes. for like an insane mm-hmm. amount of time and the crowd goes wild. They're actually, there's not a better way to say this. They lose their shit. Yes. Yeah, panties get thrown. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The, the bloomers, bloomers or whatever the equipment is. If yeah. it's legal, we'll panties, link to panties, this panties, on panties. YouTube too so you can see the scene. Mm-hmm. Yes, go so to, you can actually see it. Yeah, go to the website because it is hilarious yeah. to watch. And it's pretty cool what they did in order to sort of emulate what we think that this actually sounded like. Right. So, but for now, we'll just hear some of it so you can hear as close as we can approximate or imagine Farinelli might have sounded like.
so that's a little taste of Farinelli as we imagine he might have been. Right, the that's most right. famous of the Castrati. We did. We spent a lot of time talking about Farinelli, but we did so much so that we don't really have time to talk about other of these famous rock stars. But we thought we would just throw their names out there so that if our listeners want to research more about them on their own, mm-hmm. they have something to jump off of. Yeah. So a few of them include Pier Francesco Tossi, T-O-S-I, also Senesino, which was also a stage name, but is very easy to look up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's quite a few of them, uh, Domenico Annibali, uh, Antonio Albanese, oh, Giusto Fernando Tenducci, and, oh yes, I, this guy, Antonio Bagniera, he actually Bagniera. Oh, sorry, Bagniera. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I've had a lot to drink at this point. You're the so. Italian one. I know. I know. <laughs> Baniera. Yep, yep. Actually asked to be castrated. Whoa. Oh, at yeah. what age, though? Well, here it says that he, he felt his greatest asset was his voice. And it doesn't actually say his age. I'm just saying, presumably he was under the age of 12 and, like... right. I, do we really put that much weight in a 12-year-old's opinion? I mean, I wouldn't, but apparently his yeah. family did. Cause he, he persuaded his cousin to perform the procedure. Oh! <gasps> and he lived. And he lived. And was he successful? He sang in the Sistine Chapel, I think, and he went on huh. and sang in other places, I'm pretty sure. He I sang see. in Luli's El Chest. He didn't um, so. take some opium. I'm like, that's what actually killed people. <laughs> Right? He survived into 102 years old. That's hey, crazy. good for him. New health craze. <laughs> Remove, removal of testicles, you can live to 102. Before puberty. Anyway, there's a lot <laughs> There's a lot of Castrati. Also, Rausini. I think there's some depictions of him. And we talked about Alessandro Moreschi and Domenico Mustafa. Good name. Mustafa. So we'll link to this on the website, on the blog. We'll also probably post about it on social media, Twitter, e Facebook. But Mm. if we do it too much, people are gonna think we're sick. So Well, it will just be for a brief blip in time while we're kind of on the Castrati train and then move on (laughs) to something different. Right. Sure. Okay, great. So in the meantime, I'm Elspeth. I'm Naomi. And I'm Kyle. And thank you for listening to Opera After Dark. And join us next week where we're going to talk about God knows what. Bye. Bye. So the equivalent yeah. of that would be like John Obama Bobby. having no, like <laughs> Beyonce saying him to sleep every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's that level of fame, Are we right? sure that doesn't happen? I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen. Okay, fine. You know, I don't know. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on I it. Think so, seriously. <laughs>
That's a reference from like 10 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's where my, never mind. I was gonna say that's where my Beyonce prowess is 10 years right. ago. Oh, got it. You know? Right, I right. think Andrew People Garfield is, is good. I, so what you're saying is that I nailed it? Other, yeah. Other than his name. <laughs> other than confusing name. him with like a, a John Adams. Um, president. Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton. Mm -hmm. No, we'll get sued. You can't do that. Oh, God. Good time, having a good time. Shooting star leaping through the sky.